This is an ABC podcast. We might not have as much sunshine, but the one thing that the southern states of Australia will always have is a lack of cane toads. So there's about 50 toads turn up in Sydney every year. Ugh, what the duck? It's fine, it's fine. I'll just go further south. There's been individuals turn up in Hobart. So, in shipping containers. So, so how far they can move is probably how far you can fly them or drive them. Yeah, just what we need. Jet-setting cane toads. Welcome to What the Duck, the only podcast that will answer your questions about what type of spider lives in your car, then get lost in tales of hitchhiking animals. I'm Dr Ann Jones. Animals travel with us, and I'm not just talking about your dog. I mean, all sorts of creatures hitchhike with us as we move around. I remember a while back there was a platypus that turned up in a car engine bay in Canberra. She got named Hilux and got returned to her creek. And that might be sort of cute, but it could be really bad if a creature hitchhiked a ride in your car. You know, like bringing home bed bugs from the backpackers in Bali. And a prime example of an animal that regularly hitchhikes across the country is the cane toad, as I found out back in 2017. Okay, cane toad 101. They're an introduced animal in Australia. They have poisonous glands, which means that animals that try to eat them die. So these little guys hitchhiking can have some very serious environmental outcomes. Which brings us to this largely industrial place, just south of Sydney, Turin Point, right near the Cronulla Sharks home ground. And here's Matt Greenlees from Sydney University. Back in 2010, Sutherland Council got a phone call from someone at one of the factories in the industrial area down there. They went out to investigate that and within not much time and with little effort found 10 or 15 toads. So they engaged a consultant who was Dr Arthur White, who fortunately is a frog expert. The problem was the toads had been there for a couple of years, had bred successfully, so there were hundreds of them. That's Arthur White, the consultant in question. He's from the New South Wales Frog and Tadpole Study Group, which set up a program to monitor the hitchhiking cane toads that arrived in Sydney. So we started up because we were starting to get a a disturbing number of toads uh, being collected by our frog collectors. We approached some of the experts in the field and ask them what's the chances for instance of toads if they ever escape in Sydney surviving and breeding and the advice we had at the time was that oh Sydney's just too cold they'll never survive here that proved to be wrong we got a lot of information coming back about how toads where toads were actually coming into Sydney and it turned out the majority of them were actually coming in on the back of trucks that were bringing landscaping produce into Sydney now the reason for this turned out was that a lot of the landscaping materials like mulches and soil you know these sorts of things are all coming from far north coast New South Wales or from the Gold Coast in Queensland so we went up and had a look at some of these big supply companies and of course they have these big outside bins where they stock their mulch and all the rest. Now mulch is particularly and wood chip and all that sort of stuff it's it's wonderful because it gets nice and warm in the centre as it sits there. So toads are burrowing into the centre of this for the heat and then later on the backhoe will come along when they've got a delivery Yeah, scoop them up, chuck them in the back of the truck they get carted down to Sydney. Well it's a bit cooler here but you know I can survive 
a lot of the reports we were getting of toads once the alert was out were from construction sites or places where there were major landscaping projects going on. You know, the guys that be doing, well, what the hell's that, you know, without realising it was actually in their materials. In this industrial and built-up bit of Sydney, right near a rugby station and a road named after Captain Cook, in between car parks and trucks and building supply sites, there were toads. Lots of them. Uh, they're not listed as a pest species because they don't affect agricultural livestock. You know, QDOS has to go to Sutherland Council because they're really under no obligation to do anything about it. So for the next five years, after 2010, we've basically been going back at least once a week between August, September when it's starting to warm up and toads are becoming active through to about April and collecting and surveying for them and then at the same time trying to remove them. By 2012, we were finding very few toads. So we were getting more and more confident than we might have actually got on top of it. How long do you reckon they'd been there to get to that extent and those sorts of numbers? Well, at least three years, given the size range that we were picking up. So they were mature adults and there was hundreds of them, um, if not thousands. So I thought, right, that Sydney was too cold for toads. We'd always been told that toads just wouldn't be able to survive through the year beyond this sort of temperature gradient where it gets a bit cold in the winter. But it sounds as if they were able to breed successfully year on year at that particular outbreak site. Yeah, definitely. They bred at least three times that I know of in three different years that I'm aware of in Sydney. There's been a few people trying to predict based on what we know about the thermal biology of how far toads will be able to move down the, the east coast in particular and also the west coast. Definitely along the coast it, it tends to be a lot warmer so the environment's more favourable. There's also the potential that assisting them is what's called sort of the, the heat bubble effect which occurs around urban areas and, and built up areas around human habitation. That outbreak was back in 2010, which is a long time ago now. But the toad risk isn't over. It's a sort of stay alert but not alarmed situation for Sydney siders. I definitely now have a massive amount of respect for them. He's talking about the toads, not the Sydney siders. It's, it's not their fault that they're here. I think. They're a terrible thing to have in Australia. But we brought them here, so it's our responsibility to do something about it. So, what is it that makes an animal successful as a hitchhiker or not? Is it the ability to sleep anywhere, even upright, in a stranger's car? Or to take over the driving, roll a cigarette, wind down the window a touch, keep up the conversation, or while steering with your knees? David Chappell is from Monash University, and he's looked into success and failure of the hitchhiker. And what is success? Getting through the four main stages of the introduction process. Ooh, we know I love a listicle. So here it goes. The steps to success for potential hitchhiking pests. Where's the voice of the internet? Hi, Anne. Ah, hi. OK, take it away. One, the pickup. So firstly, you have to be transported to a new location. So you need to be in the right place at the right time to be picked up by humans in whatever way and transported to a new location. 
to the sneaky disembark. Once you get to that new spot, you then have to manage to get out of the freight or the cargo or someone's backpack and you manage to have to do that without being detected by anyone. Three, find the food court. You then have to establish in the new site. And this includes basic survival, something to eat, somewhere to stay, and then, to truly establish, you need to find someone with whom to populate the area. Four, love, marriage and migration. You've built up large enough numbers, you then have to start expanding out in the new area that you've got to. So you're only classed as being successful if you get through all of those four stages. Right. When you list it out like this, it actually sounds like quite the game of life and death to become a successful hitchhiking invader. But when the equation is just perfectly balanced, some species can make it happen and thrive. So firstly, you have to occur in a region near where people are because there's a large opportunity aspect to it. So if you're not where people are, it's very unlikely you're going to get transported. So that's the first thing. And then the second thing is you just need great flexibility in how you live your life. You need to be able to adapt to new food sources, you need to be able to adapt to different predators and different environments that you may not be used to. So very, very flexible lifestyle. But it's very clear that some species do it much better than others. So there are some species that are just very, very exploratory. So they go out and explore the environment and they generally are more likely to get into situations where they're transported to new locations rather than those that are a little bit more of a homebody and don't venture too far. Those animals are generally the ones that also do quite well when they get to the new new spots because they also do a very good job of establishing and exploring their new environment once they get to it as well. So take the panda. Seems like a cruisy enough animal, but it's actually unlikely to be a secret hitchhiker. It has trouble with stress, doesn't like the heat, it has a specific diet, isn't particularly good at sneaking, doesn't really live anywhere it could have an opportunity to accidentally climb onto the back of a truck, uh, and a notoriously low sex drive. I mean, it would be a miracle if they managed to make it to Australia and successfully establish. So, at a species level, there are some who are just going to be more likely to be a good stowaway prospect. Within each species, not every individual is the same. Some are very bold and outgoing, where others are quite shy and timid. And what we've been able to show is that it's the really bold individuals within the population that are most likely to get transported to somewhere new. So it's not even at a species level, it's a personality thing. It's a little bit of both. So some species are more bold than others, but even within bold species, some individuals are more bold than others. Right, similar to humans. Yeah, exactly. And a lot of the theory and the literature around this area was originally developed in humans and has been... Uh, since sort of transferred across to a, a wide range of different animal species. And then there's the topic, as ever, of love. You have to be lucky enough not just to be transported to a new spot, but once you get there, you ha- actually have to find another individual of the same species. And that can often be quite hard because it's usually only one or two individuals that are transported at a time. So, say in the case of the Sydney Toads, there had to have been maybe a couple of individuals that arrived, survived, found each other, found a pond and successfully mated for the population to be able to continue. Yeah, it's generally a very lonely journey and, yeah, it can be very, very harsh depending on whether you're having to last, you know, several months at sea in a cargo ship or surviving in the cargo hold of a plane that's taking a long-haul flight overseas somewhere. And, of course, it's not all 
about the actual hitchhiker because, like in the toads, the arrival of hitchhiking creatures could have a detrimental impact on the local environment. We've been focusing a lot on the biosecurity implications, so trying to predict what species are most likely to be transported and arrive in particular locations, what type of species biosecurity agencies should be most worried about. And what are your biggest concerns? So obviously any species that has a relatively short generation time, so they mature really quickly and they have lots of offspring, and also ones that are likely to compete with native species. If you get a new species coming into that uh, ecosystem, you can be sometimes a little bit worried that they might displace some of the native species and cause concern for them. A single Galapagos turtle might not be of huge concern. It's unlikely to sneak into that port unnoticed, whereas black rats, which have jumped ships since ships first started arriving in Australia, are sneaky as anything, breed really fast, find food everywhere, and have committed untold damage to our ecosystems. But sometimes, conservation biologists actually offer rides to creatures to try and save ecosystems. So, translocation is a tool that conservation biologists use to reintroduce a species to an area where it's no longer there, to introduce a species to a new area so it can be safe, or to restock or improve numbers for uh, wildlife. Dr Maggie Watson is a lecturer in ornithology and one of the authors of a recent paper titled The Hitchhiker's Guide to Australian Conservation. It is something that is increasing uh, as we enter into more and more changes in habitat. We're identifying more and more species that are in trouble. And this is one of the best tools in the conservation toolbox that we have for helping species that are on the edge of extinction. But when we move any animal around, including ourselves, we're taking with it a whole heap of potential problems. They might have mites or facial tumour disease or tapeworms or COVID. And that's why we have quarantine systems and the like. But are there any protocols for when native animals are moved around? No, there's quite a few papers worldwide saying, oh, you know, we should probably consider this sort of thing. <laughs> and <laughs> so there, there is no protocol that's set out at the state level when you get a scientific permit to do this sort of thing. Usually someone will go, oh, hey, you should probably look at whatever. But um, there, yeah, there's no like checklist of, of things. Of course, even the most well-meaning of ad hoc approaches can lead to a bit of a disaster, like the introduced cane toads. But it can be a disaster for the animal being translocated too, which I suppose is an, another way of saying kidnapped for the environment. There was a qual translocation here in Australia, and uh, you might be familiar with the paralysis tick. Mm. So they moved animals from one area that didn't have the paralysis tick into an area that had the paralysis tick, not realising that these new animals would just keel over and die because they'd never been exposed to that particular parasite before. It hasn't been very well studied, but uh, if you put an immunologically naive individual out in the wild, they are easy prey for everything. 
and not by the predators, but by parasites and disease.、Mm. So you've got to build them up to being exposed to these sorts of things. So it's、mm. it's a very complicated process when you start thinking about all of the the links, all the webs, all the spider webs that link everything together. Even though so much care was taken, giving the animals a safe lift to their new home, putting them into an unusual environment without the right immune preparation was a death sentence. It's easy to blame the ticks in this case. It's always easy to blame the parasites. The first thing you got to get your head around is that everyone thinks that parasites are bad. So if you have parasites in your dog, tapeworms coming out of their bum or something, and you're like, "Oh, I got to get rid of them," and the vets tell you every three months, give them dewormers, and if you've got stock, it's like, give them dewormers and delousers and de everything. When you start looking at wild animals. They've actually had a very, very long association with all of their parasites, and when you start looking at the effects of parasites, the the ones、uh, that they naturally have have very little effect. They're actually just hanging out with each other, and there are some positive effects that we've been able to detect when、uh, parasites are present, because it primes their immune system. It makes them better. At surviving everything else, if they've got parasites, we find this in humans too. And so there's this amazing study in Africa, where these immunologists from Queensland were studying this sudden outbreak of asthma in kids. And it turned out that a well-meaning group from the United States had come in and looked at the, the dogs that were running around and said, "Oh, they're wormy." We'll bring over dewormers every year that we come, and so they de- for years they started deworming the dogs. And what that meant was that the hookworms that the dogs naturally had weren't being passed to the kids, and the kids weren't having their immune system primed for dealing with stuff like pollen and peanuts and whatever. And so they what they named it was this allergy cascade. It gets even more complicated, because the host and parasite relationships evolve over millennia, and there are even host-specific parasites. So, you know, when the Tassie tiger was forced into extinction, it may have taken several species of intestinal worm with it. Think about it. Say you move a numbat from one state to another. With it, you might be taking a whole package of interlaced organisms. Parasites are tied to their host、uh, in ways that it's hard for us as a non-parasite to understand completely. But everything revolves around their host. Most parasites don't want to kill their host because that's taking away not only where they live but where they eat and everything like that. There are a few parasites that are are deadly, and that's like a different category. But most parasites are desperately trying to keep their host as healthy as possible. Other parasites will evolve, and they'll be kind of floozies, and they'll jump from from host to host. You know, <laughs> it doesn't really matter. You know, it's a mammal. I don't care. I'll just take it. Oh, it's got blood. I'll just take it. One of the most famous stories uh, about uh, a hitchhiking event that went wrong was the California condor. So the California condor was. Desperately in trouble. A lot of that was due to lead shot because they're scavengers. They're a vulture. They were going downhill. Anyway, all of the individuals were brought into captivity in a last-ditch effort to try and 
to save them. And the protocol at that time was, from the veterinary point of view, is just nuke them with every antiparasitic that you can possibly think of. And so they inadvertently made the endemic louse go extinct on this species. In an effort to save the condor, they forced the extinction of another species. You could extrapolate too, then, that if an animal is kept parasite-free for a long time, it could make them more vulnerable when they're exposed, when they're out in the environment. So, yes, that would be an issue if you had some perilously endangered species like an albatross you should see the albatross lice they're huge really (laughs) yeah they scale up it's great (laughs) wow it's like wow (laughs) are you itching yet okay 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 so in all of this it's almost been as if the animals themselves are powerless being moved around from place to place and exposed to novel dangers at every pace But I saw Milo and Otis when I was a kid, and it didn't teach me anything useful, except that sometimes animals can find their way home. So it's kind of the real-life Finding Nemo story a little bit. Dr Robert Stryatt is with the Reef Function Hub at James Cook University, and those are his words describing an experiment where he tried to understand whether fish could find their way home. You jump in the water and you go for a snorkel on a reef and you see a whole lot of fish swimming back and forth. I always thought, well, they're just transiting through. You know, they, you see them with your eyes in a certain spot. But I never thought about where do they come from? Where are they at night? Are they going to be there the next day? But once you start looking at individual fishes rather than at a school of fish, you really realize that they have homes. They know where they are and they turns out they don't want to leave that spot. What does that actually tell you about fish society? Well, it tells us that they might be, we call them their sticky fish communities. So they might be less likely to shift away and move to a different spot if they're sort of local neighborhood on the reef, if that goes down in quality. You know, if you might have coral bleaching or a cyclone hitting a certain reef. If these fishes have strict homes, they might not be able to, you know, pack up their boxes and move somewhere else. How did you test that? We caught a bunch of baby fish, basically, of many different species, and we took them from their homes and we put them somewhere else on the reef. We also put them to nice places, so we we gave them opportunities to look at some new neighbourhoods. So you were deliberately displacing them to see what would happen? Yeah, exactly. And that's where the Finding Nemo experiment description comes in. You know, we took, we're the scary monsters that abduct the the babies and put them somewhere else but yeah our intention was to see if they if we put them somewhere else when they come back that shows us that they've got this drive this need this desire to go where they were before and that alone shows as well they're attached to their home we call it homing behavior or or site attachment and what did you find we found that across the so we did it across seven species and all of them were really good at coming back home Not every single fish made it, but about two-thirds of them made it. And the ones that didn't come back home were the smallest ones, and they most often stayed at where we put them. The tiny little ones were less connected to their home. Exactly. So there seems to be this sort of size and age-driven connection to home, but the smallest ones were really baby babies and we calculated what body size they were when they started homing 
And across the different species, that was about at uh, roughly two to three weeks after they came to the reef. So really young fish are sticky and they, they have a home and they want to be there. But let's put this in context. What we're talking about here is an experiment. Very small fish and a very small distance. So we did it across multiple distances because we wanted to see where's the cutoff. Because we thought, yeah, sure, two meters they can probably almost see and they can probably come back. But we did two meters, five meters, 10 meters, 50 meters. And the longest one was 150 meters away, which might not sound that much, but underwater you you can't see that far. You maximum usually see where we study maybe five meters. So 150 is really quite a distance, especially for fish that's the size of your pinky finger. So we put them these 3,000 body lengths away. We calculated that's about how big it is. And we weren't sure how they're gonna make it or if they're gonna make it, but they did. And they really blew us out of the water with how far we could push them and they still made it home. A rare glimpse of good news among the ticks and tapeworms, that even if Nemo did get swept up in a way, he might have been able to find his way home. What the Duck is produced by me, Anne Jones, and Patria Ladgrove. Script editing by Joel Werner. We're producing the show mostly on Wadawurrung and Ghana country. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.